The year was 1971, and the song that struck a chord with audiences all over the world was released by John Lennon, entitled Imagine. And the song begins this way, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky, imagine all the people living, no, just (laughs) living for today. Some people hear this song and they can appreciate it. And what they appreciate is that there is no afterlife. Imagine this is all that there is. We've seen people in our day hunker down and hoard, waiting for for their God to come and get them. We've also seen others that are willing to harm themselves and harm others because they believe a reward waits on the other side. Many hear this. Imagine all the people living for today. And that mantra, living for today, It seems to be the fix-all. It seems to be what people want to do. But let's be clear, it's only the fix-all if life is easy. It's only the answer if there isn't a life that's full of pain and suffering. Are we prepared to say to the nursing home-bound loved one, who can no longer speak for themselves and dress themselves and feed themselves, just live for today. Does the coaster ride from young to middle age to elderly really end with the hope, just live for today? What about entire people groups in world history who've suffered at the hands of oppressive men? Is is the best we have to offer. Imagine this world is all that there is and let's rejoice that you can live for today. Certainly we do believe as Christians that we have more to say. We believe much like Paul who said that the suffering in this world is not worth comparing to the glory of the Lord that is to be revealed when Christ returns. And yet John Lennon's lyrics They didn't only reflect the thought of modern men living at the turn or the end of the 20th century. Almost 2,000 years prior, Peter wrote this letter to combat false teachers who perpetuated similar teachings. As we'll see in our passage this morning that we just heard read, 2 Peter chapter 3, the first 10 verses, these false teachers were willing to set aside the return of Jesus. They were willing to set aside the end of the world. They were willing to say there is no coming future judgment. And they were willing to treat those historical realities as though they were fables or myths. In their minds, the world would just keep going as it always had. Chapter 2 clarified the kind of lifestyle that these false teachers embodied. It was the mantra of forget eternity and live for today. 
make the most of today because today is all that matters. And in this last chapter, chapter 3 of the letter of 2 Peter, Peter reminds the readers and us by extension this morning that those who deny the return of Jesus, those who are willing to overlook historical verifiable fact and deny his return, they fail to misunderstand or they fail to understand the scriptures. They fail to understand God's grace and they fail to ignore or they fail to obey Christ's commands. We could sum up Peter's message this way. Because the Bible is clear about Christ's return, we must live today in light of that coming day. If I could say it another way, contrary to what John Lennon wrote and what John Lennon hoped, we aren't a people who are simply living for today. We live today in light of the coming day of the Lord. Friends, I wonder what your life evidences more clearly as it pertains to which day you live for. Does your life evidence more clearly that you live for today? Or does your life evidence more clearly that you live for the day that he returns? Well, let's pray that from our time in the word of God this morning that we would each be convinced of the need that we have to live today in light of the one that is to come when Christ returns. Let's pray. Our holy God, we are gathered, whether this is the thousandth time we've ever gathered together, whether this is the first time, we are gathered to hear from you. And it's no accident that we are here, so we ask that you would speak to us in and through your word. For that to happen, I pray that I would decrease, I pray that Christ would increase and increase in our hearts this morning. Do a work in our hearts to convict us of sin, to draw us near to Jesus. And would you equip us from our time together for a life of obedience? Pour out your grace upon us today. It's in that grace that we desire and need to stand, and it's because of that grace that we desperately want to live as different people. And so come and minister to us by your Spirit through your Word. May your Word go forth with great power and clarity. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. You will get more out of the sermons when you have a Bible in your hand and you're able to follow along. In this last chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter really picks back up on the theme that he began in chapter 1. Namely, that if these Christians were to remain faithful, they were to remain in the way of righteousness, they would do so by holding fast to the precious and magnificent promises of God's word. And these false teachers, as we've seen in 2 Peter chapter 2, from within these churches, they did not believe that the return of Christ was, was going to happen. And because they didn't believe that the return of Christ was going to happen, 
Then they saw there was no need to live for any other day than this one. Make the most. Eat, drink, and be merry. This has proven, this line of thinking has proven throughout human history to lead to sexual immorality because it puts the accent mark over self. No restraint over self. And as 2 Peter 2 showed us, reminded us, even these false teachers, their lives were insanely immoral. And so the, the false teachers are exposed in chapter 2. They expose, uh, they're exposed for the way that they live, but they're also exposed for what it is that they taught. And here in the first half of, uh, the first half of chapter 3, he confronts the denial of Christ, the denial of the return of Christ head on. And so we'll see four sections in our passage this morning. Uh, those four sections will serve as the outline to the sermon. Uh, the title of the sermon is called The Coming Day of the Lord. And each of the sermon points really, if you sort of added a dot, 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 you could say concerning the coming day of the Lord. And so the coming day of the Lord is what each of the sermon points will be pointing to. First section that we'll notice Remember the word of the Lord. Remember the word of the Lord, dot, 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 concerning the coming day of the Lord. Remember the word of the Lord. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles. And so before we, be, before we jump into anything that Peter teaches, just be struck anew by the affection in which Peter is writing these words. Peter's not heavy-handed with these words. He is taking, he, he's taken uh, a very hard stand on truth, a very unmovable stance concerning what is true, but it's laced with affection. We see this by the phrase, beloved, beloved, as he leans in to shepherd these Christians, he's compelled, he's motivated by love, by compassion. Faithful teachers are marked by genuine love for those they are instructing. And in contrast, the false teachers, they're unloving. They don't share affection for those whom they are trying to, to reach, trying to deceive. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, it is a gift of grace when your pastors, when your teachers love you. When they are moved by affection for you. There are a host of ways that the elders of this church stand to grow. But rest assured, I think what is evident in our elders' meetings, I think what's evident in our interactions with one another is a genuine love for you. I pray that our elders would have a visible affection the way Peter has a visible affection for these Christians. 
And Peter also notes that in both of the letters, this is most likely a reference to the first letter that he wrote, 1 Peter. He notes that in both of those letters, he's been writing to them to awaken them, to alert them, to stir them up, to think rightly. And it's an interesting phrase that Peter uses. He says, I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind. Sincere mind. The word sincere there, it, it captures the idea of wholesome. It was used oftentimes as something was tested by the sun. You put it out in the sun and you would see it was tested and it was, it was shown to be pure, wholesome. And so how in the world is Peter going to help these Christians have this purity, this sobriety to their thinking as it relates to matters of eternity? Well, it's clear. He's going to remind them of the truth. He's going to remind them of the truth. This is what he said at the beginning of this letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and you have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up, to alert you by way of reminder. You see, Peter's aim isn't to give loads of new information that they've never heard, but to remind them of what it is that the Old Testament has said, to remind them of what it is that their Savior, Jesus Christ, has said, to remind them of what it is that the apostles had taught them. And the clear tie is that the things in which the Old Testament says and the things in which Jesus has said, and the things in which the apostles had said, those things are the same thing. They're all testifying to the truthfulness of one another. These Christians had been taught these truths before, and they needed to hear it again. And again, the same is true for us. In part, one of the reasons that we come here week after week is to be reminded of what it is that we have already been taught. And so as a church, we should never be apologetic for the ministry of reminding one another. We hear and we leak, as one theologian, Jay Popovich, has said. (laughs) Friends, we need to be reminded of truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Who doesn't need to be reminded that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? One of the more evident realities among Christians is that they are loaded down with guilt. Who doesn't need to be reminded of Romans 8? Who doesn't need to be reminded of Romans 8.28? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those called according to His purpose. Friends, this is not a trite saying. This is a needed promise that's meant to wash over our souls so that we would have confidence in who God is and the fact that He is with us no matter what it is that we face. He's reminding them, Peter wants to remind them of the words of the prophets and the words of Christ that were passed down by the apostles. And while it's, while it's worthwhile, while it's necessary for us to remember everything that the prophets said and everything that Jesus said, 
and everything that the apostles spoke. There's clear emphasis in Peter's writing, not just on everything they said, but on what they said concerning the coming day of the Lord. There's a particular focus to this. Perhaps passages like Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. There is a coming day of the Lord in which there is judgment for the wicked. But verse 2 of Malachi 4 says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. History is moving to a moment where everyone who opposes God will be judged, and all who fear God will be vindicated. I mean, the Old Testament is just replete with examples of this. Perhaps one of the more uh, concentrated passages is Isaiah chapter 66. So if you have time today or this week, I would encourage you to look at Isaiah chapter 66 and just see this kind of laser focus on the coming day of the Lord and what that means for both sinner and for saint. Or think about the words of Jesus. I mean, even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 He told his disciples to stay awake, beginning in verse 42. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And so not only did the holy prophets attest attest to this, but Jesus himself told his followers to stay awake, for I will return. These holy prophets and Christ himself spoke about that one of the marks of the last days would be that there would be mockers, there would be scoffers, who mock and scoff at the fact that he's going to return. And so Peter is writing to encourage these churches and these Christians to say, stand firm by remembering the word of the Lord. And in fact, the presence of mockers and scoffers is only further confirming that what he said is indeed true. I wonder, Christian brothers and sisters, do you study God's word to know God? Do you know the word of the Lord so as to withstand false teaching? I mean, ever ever since Eve in the garden, God's people have been opposed by others concerning what God has said. And that's why this series has been a good reminder for us as a church family. We are committed to allowing expositional preaching. When I say expositional, it means the point of the the passage in the Bible is the point of the sermon as it's being preached. That type of preaching is the centerpiece of our services and our gatherings because we need to remember the word of the Lord. 
It serves no one to have men stand up here and give you their opinion. We need to remember the word of the Lord. And so I would challenge us to commit ourselves anew to remembering his word. And that leads us to the second section. The second section, number two, beware of false teaching, dot, 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 concerning the coming day of the Lord. Beware of false teaching concerning the coming day of the Lord. We see this in verses three and four. Beware of false teaching. Peter writes, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so here, Peter gives us in these two verses, the clearest crux of the false teachers and the false teaching that these Christians are facing. He notes that these mockers will come in the last days. Oftentimes when we hear last days, we think of uh, just some weird ch chart in somebody's trunk and just confusion of what in the world is going on. But the Bible makes clear that the last days really is that, that period between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his return. Friends, that would mean that you and I are living in the last days. With every passing moment, one page closer to the end. I wonder if you stop to think about this. Do you stop to consider this? It's been some 2,000 years since Christ was here. Friends, we are more near to the end than ever before in human history. And the closer we get, the more that mocking and scoffing will emerge. There was a lot of mocking here in Peter's day as he's writing this letter some 30 years after the death of Christ. How much more so? Some 2,000 years after the death of Christ. And why are they mocking? Well, he tells us in verse 3. They're following after their own lusts. They're following after their own lust. They're, this wasn't a logically tight argument that they were making. No, no, no. What we see is they wanted the pleasures of the world. And that desire for sinful pleasures and sinful desires drove their stance on what they thought. They made a doctrine fit their living. If there's ever a mantra that sounds like our day, it's that. Let's make doctrine to fit our living. And so many people today, they deny Christ not because they are convinced that he's not who the Bible says he is, not because they're convinced that he has not done what the Bible says that Christ has done. No, many people deny Christ because they don't want Christ to be true because they are lovers of their lusts. They are lovers of their own desires. And they're willing to gamble eternity away on the ridiculous odds that this life is all there is. 
In verse 4, the false teacher's issue is made as plain as can be. The false teachers would say, you are a fool if you think Jesus is returning. Because he hasn't intervened in the world ever since the creation of this world. If you were to flip back to Jeremiah chapter 17 in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah kept showing up and saying, the word of the Lord says this, the word of the Lord is this, the word of the Lord is this. And the people in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 17, 15 captures this really well. They just begin to say, where is this word of the Lord? Like, I hear you talking about it, but we're not seeing anything. The same thing would happen in Ezekiel's day as the people of God would doubt that judgment would come. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 22. I hope you can see the connections. The false teachers thought, why in the world would we obey the babysitter if mom and dad are not coming home? Why in the world would we restrain ourselves from living lives that we want to live, that feed everything that we desire, if Christ isn't returning. Because if he isn't returning, then there's no future judgment. And so their message was believe in him, but then live as you please. And their logic was that since, since creation... Since really God wound the watch at creation, he has set it aside and he's let it run without any interference. Friends, this is typical. This is a typical declaration in our day as well. People say the sun rises and the sun sets today and guess what? It will rise and it will set tomorrow. Seasons come and they go and next year they will come and they go. And there's this idea that the laws of nature are, are fixed and, and belief in anything that could change kind of a miraculous, a supernatural, an act of singularity that could be inserted into something that's been and been and been and been. And they had no room for it. They said there's no way he's going to kind of jump in at one point. Because he's not jumped in since the creation of the world. And again, this is just common thinking. Science, history. They're observable, they're definable, they're factual. So when we begin to speak of a creator, uh, there can't be one. Because it just doesn't fit. Friends, let's be clear. If your concept of God is one who's constrained by science or history, then you don't have a true God at all. My non-Christian friends that are here this morning, do you believe that this present world will end? What are you doing with the reality of what happens after you breathe for the last time. What would you think would be the cause of such an ending to this present world? I wonder if you think that there will be a final evaluation of your life, and if you do believe that there will be some type of evaluation, who will give that? And on what basis will your life be evaluated? 
Friends, the message of Christianity is that the end will indeed come. And when it does, there is a sobering, terrifying reality that's staring each of us in the face. And that is that we will stand before a holy God and we will give an account for ways in which we have been most unholy. We believe that all of history is coming to this moment where we will stand to give an account for all that we have said and all that we have done and all that we have thought and every motive that has not been honoring to the God who created us, to whom we are accountable to, all of that will be laid bare and exposed on that great day. The scorecard that he holds up in every area is one of perfection. Just think back to your last week. How often have you missed the mark at perfection? How often have you missed the mark of doing exactly what it is that you should have done with the right motives in doing them, having thought the right thoughts while doing them? There just begins to be a case that's being made against every one of us who will stand before this holy God and give an account and any demerits of not meeting his perfection in every single way, even if it's just one, means that you and I are deserving of his intense hatred, his white hot wrath, his powerful revulsion against sin. We are all deserving of that. And if only that could just sort of be poured out on us in a moment. But sins committed against an eternal God don't just go away in a moment. They are paid for in eternity. A constant place of bearing His righteous and intense hatred for sin. He's the one who is offended by sin. And he's the one who justly judges sin. When this life ends, we are all headed towards that moment where we stand before that holy God with the reality that we are not holy as he is. And this is the most depressing message of all if the story ended there. But praise be to God, good news emerges. That this God isn't just He's not only holy, righteous, judge. He's also merciful, compassionate, loving Savior. And he comes in the form of a man. He becomes a man and he lives perfectly to stand up to the standard that God has. He mercifully dies to pay the penalty of sin on the cross. And he rose showing that the payment was sufficient. Friends, The Bible tells us that God will place all of his wrath on Christ and he will give mercy to all who turn from living for themselves and trusting in Christ alone. This is the good news of the Christian faith, that we don't have to dread and fear death because what awaits us isn't intense hatred because of our sin, 
but eternal joy because of the work of Christ, His, His perfection, His covering for our sin. Friends, this is your only hope for escaping what you rightly deserve. Don't gamble eternity away, betting all of your life, letting it all ride on the popular opinion of today. Go all in on the breathed out word of God that points us to a hope in and through the person and the work of Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, turn from your sin today. Trust Jesus today. You of all people, just like every other person who has ever come to Christ by faith, you are not deserving of his grace. And what makes his grace and his love so scandalous is that he gives it to those who least deserve it. Friends, if you have questions about what that means, ask anyone that's sitting in this room. Look to the left, look to the right. At the end of the service, find me, find other, others that are out by the information table. It would be our delight to talk to you about this. And so Peter cautions the listener to beware of this faulty logic that says, God hasn't acted yet in history. And so if he's not acted yet in history, what makes anyone think that he's going to act in the future? Well, Peter gives his answer, and that leads us to our, to our third section. Number three, reasons to trust God. Dot, dot, dot. Concerning the coming day of the Lord. Reasons to trust God. We see this in verses five through seven. Uh, Peter doesn't even give time for the argument to sound plausible before he gives three compelling reasons why Christians should flee such teaching. I mean, he shows that even the logic of their argument breaks down on itself. And I believe that if you were to look at verse 5 in the New American Standard, it says, for when they maintain this, they being the false teachers, whenever the false teachers say, hey, why in the world would we think he's ever going to act in the future? He's not done anything since the creation of the world. Peter says, whenever they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That's how the New American Standard reads it. Reads it. I appreciate how the ESV reads it. The ESV captures the picture better by saying they deliberately overlooked this fact. They are willfully turning their eyes away from historical, verifiable reality. This wasn't an honest mistake. They were defiantly dismissing the historical realities that they were aware of. These false teachers had the audacity to roll their eyes in judgment over the word of God that would highlight God's acts of judgment against sin. Three reasons that Peter gives to show that the, the logic is just faulty. If you think, well, why in the world would you ever trust God to intervene? Because God has not even intervened since the creation of the world. Reason number one, they were wrong because by his word, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at what he says in verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, or they deliberately overlook this fact, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. They charge God for being absent since creation. And Peter says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You just missed it. Think about what he did at creation. 
And he goes back and he takes them to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless. So after God creates the heavens and the earth, verse 2, there is a formless and void earth. Darkness is over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we find that out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. And that original creation was without form, it was without void, and it's watery. Verse 6 tells us that then God separates, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. There's, a, there's this separation that takes place, the waters in the sea and then the waters are, are lifted up to the sky, the, the same waters that would bring forth precipitation even today. And so it's through this act of his word, separating the waters from the waters, that ground begins to appear. You begin to think, okay, what, Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. And what Peter is saying is that you have just denied that he's done nothing since creation. But do you understand what creation was? Creation was him intervening, bringing order out of chaos. And so he's making this clear. And how did he do it? He did it by his word. And not only did he create by his word, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, the word is now even being upheld by the power of his word. And so to say that he just sort of wound the clock at creation and has stepped back, that's not true because he's upholding everything even now. Reason number two, they were wrong. Not only because God's clear intervention at creation. Reason number two, because God was clearly involved with the flood. Look at verse six. After talking about that earth that was formed, he says, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And so Peter is highlighting that this world that was created by the word and water was also destroyed. Why? Because of God's word. How? By water. We don't have time to read it, but I would encourage you to look at Genesis chapter 6. Look at Genesis chapter 7. You just began to see the Lord looks down and he sees it is rampant evil. And he's grieved. He's grieved over the state of his creation. And in just judgment, he then says, I will flood the whole earth. I will kill everything. And in a moment of great grace, Noah and his family find favor. They find favor with God. These false teachers knew that the world that they were living in was not the same that had always been since creation. Why not? Because in the day of Noah, God acted. He intervened in judgment and flooded the earth because of the sin. And so if the flood is true, then rest assured that future judgment will indeed come. I mean, this is the, the mounting argument that he's making. And so Peter says, look at creation. And then Peter says, look at the flood. 
And then he looks back at the false teachers and he says, these false teachers are proving to be false. They're proving to be irresponsible because they're not even handling the public information that they know very well. Reason number three that they were wrong, verse seven, is because by that same word, that same word which brought forth order out of chaos, the same word through which God said he would judge the earth by the water. God said that the heavens and the earth are being stored up for judgment. Except this time, a time in the future, it won't be a judgment by water. It will be a judgment by fire. The same word that can create life and make it rain in judgment can also make it rain fire in judgment. And Peter stresses that it's the same word, the same word at creation, the same word at the flood, and the same word at the coming day of the Lord. Peter gives three examples to just say, as sure as the created world had order formed out of watery chaos, as sure as the ordered world was flooded in chaotic judgment, so too we can be confident that the Lord will return to judge every action, every thought, every word, and every motive. Friends, the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord will happen. I wondered this week as I was thinking about this, I just wondered and began to think as the rains begin to fall in Noah's day, let's just, let's just assume for a moment that you were his neighbor. And as the rains began to fall, I wonder what you would have thought. You ever thought about this? What they wish they knew is probably what many will wish they knew when the clouds peel back and the Lord returns. I just wrote out a few things this week as I was thinking about this. I'm sure if I was a neighbor and the rains began to fall and it was clear that this wasn't just a passing storm, I'm sure they thought that those who were trusting in God for salvation were the smart ones. Imagine the waters beginning to rise to the point where their lives are beginning to be threatened. I imagine that unlike John Lennon's words, they thought today doesn't matter if you don't have tomorrow. Friends, prepare to live your life now so you won't be ashamed on the other side of your last breath. I imagine as they were bobbing up and down in the waters about to drown. That there was a feeling of overwhelm that they should have taken God at his word. Friends, God can be for you or he can be against you. And if you are not willing to turn from your sin before you breathe your last, you will never know what it's like to have God for you. I could say it another way. He is against you while you are still yet in your sins. Friends, Jesus is a refuge and a fortress, an ever-present help in time of need. If you are not a Christian this morning, I pray that much like those in Noah's day, 
as the rains begin to come down, you would see now is a day of need in your life. And that brings us to our last section. Section four, remember God. Remember God. Dot, dot, dot. As it pertains to the coming day of the Lord. And we see these in the last three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10. And Peter really serves us by giving us three truths about God that would help us, but also it would help the original listener to trust in God's word. And so Peter commends, remember God. Don't be swayed by false teachers. And so remember your God. And the same word that he uses in verse 5 for false teachers, having deliberately overlooked, he uses in verse 8, and he tells these Christians, do not deliberately overlook the fact that this is who God is. He reminds these Christians of God's nature. He reminds these Christians of God's patience. He reminds these Christians of God's judgment. First, remember God's nature. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Do not deliberately put this aside, beloved, that with the, the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Reaching back to the psalmist in Psalm, Psalm chapter 90 verse 4 that reads, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. And what's interesting in Psalm chapter 90, the eternity of God is contrasted with the 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 temporary nature of humans. You have God who's eternal and men and humanity who, who are not. And here, Peter contrasts the eternity of God with the impatience of human expectations. What is agonizingly long to us is a short blip of time to him. And to trust God to trust that this is true requires a level of humility that many people are not willing to embrace. Because this requires us to conceive that the distance between God and us is larger, it's greater, it spans much, much wider than we could ever imagine. I mean, just consider God for a moment. He's not subject to, to time. God doesn't age. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. While he fills all time, time is never a barrier to him. These false teachers, some 30 years later, were thinking, He's not doing anything. Friends, we can't go back to a time where he was not. And we can't go forward to a time in which he will not be. The only one in all of the universe who is never late. He doesn't work on the basis of time as we do. He is the one who can be trusted. And so entrust yourself to him. See that he is not restrained and constrained by time as we are. But not only remember his nature, but also remember his patience. Remember his patience. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow to bring judgment in, as though somehow he's forgotten about what he said. He is patient. He's not like the absentee landlord. Why is he patient, you ask? Because he desires people to repent. He desires people to trust in the Lord for salvation. He's not slow. He's patient. Think of what all he has endured daily just from you. He's patient. I praise God that he's patient. I I thank the Lord that he didn't come back some 30 years ago when I was still in my sin. It's not that he's absentee. He's patient. He's more patient than anyone you've ever known. Psalm 103, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. His calendar is ordered by compassion. God's delay is because he's waiting for his sheep to come home to the fold. And here's the crazy thing. These false teachers are taking the time that God had given for repentance and throwing it in his face, saying that he's unreliable because he's not yet returned. It's the height of arrogance. Christians, I pray that we would spend our lives busy in the practice of sharing this good news while there is still time, while he is still patient. His patience isn't license for us to sleep. It's opportunity for us to busy ourselves knowing that the end is more near today than ever before. And then third, he just says, remember his judgment. The coming day of the Lord, it will come when you least expect it. It's too late to slow down whenever the lights are flashing in the rearview mirror. It's too late to get up and lock the door whenever the thief is in the house. So too, it will be too late when the clouds are peeled back and the Lord returns. Again, Matthew 24 describes this. Many aren't ready for it. But when it happens, everything will be judged. And so what will become of your hope on that day? What will become of what it is that you're hoping in? Your hopes will be exposed for what they truly are. And friends, I pray that you would not be willing to lose your soul to gain a few years of earthly pleasure. I don't know what lies you're believing. I don't know what idols you're holding on to. But turn to truth and cast them down. How do we live in daily awareness of Christ's return? Keep away from sin. Keep away from the dark. Keep coming to Christ. Don't be fooled by the mocker's argument that though it hasn't happened yet, it never will. I heard Mark Dever say, imagine if your spouse came to you saying that they found that they could buy gifts for free. I can just buy gifts and I don't have to pay for them. 
And your spouse said that they've not yet gotten any bills for all of the gifts that they have gotten. And even though the the store threatens to send bills, they've not yet gotten bills, so they have concluded that they could go and they could purchase as many gifts as they want for free. Day after day, gifts are bought and still no bills. Gifts are used and gifts are enjoyed and still no bills. And gifts are broken and some are even taken back and still no bills. But the time will come when the current month gives way to the next and the bills will come, even though, in fact, they had never yet come before. Friends, don't live as if the bills will never come. According to the Bible, the bill has already come and judgment is in order for all. The question is, who will pay your bill? The good news is that for those who are willing to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, Christ has paid all of our bill. And for those who are yet to turn, who are insisting on paying your own debts, your bills, the bill of your sins are far greater than anything you will ever finish paying for all of eternity. Friends, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus isn't the Christian mascot. Jesus came to save sinners by shedding his blood for all who would trust in him. And his coming judgment cannot, it has potential for you to not be a thing of immeasurable anxiety. It has potential for you to be something of immense joy where your heavenly father says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our holy God, I pray that you would 